asked for your questions about objectivist philosophy and you submitted them. And answering your submitted questions on philosophy is something we would like to make a more regular feature of this podcast, and we're beginning today. So welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Agustina Vergara Cid, and I'm a research associate at ARI. With me are Ben Bayer, fellow and instructor at ARI, and Mike Matza, junior fellow at ARI. Welcome, guys. Hi, Agustina. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, so I'm going to be asking you some of the questions uh, we selected from the ones we received, and uh, plus a few other questions of special interest is that we have gotten from our Objectives Academic Center students uh, for, from this year. Just, you know, to, to give a flavor of what we discuss in the OEC, the Objectives Academic Center. So we try to pick a mix of questions on topics ranging from ethics and politics to epistemology and the Objectivist movement too. So why don't we get started with the first question? So the first question is regarding charity. And the question is, does the independent man accept charity? So Dr. Peikoff writes that the independent man must pay his own way, but he must be self-reliant in the mental world and in the physical world. And Dr. Peikoff says this in, in his book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. So take, for instance, this context. Um, a non-religious refugee family arrives in a new country with nothing, but they, they own nothing, they have no money, but the parents have already obtained permits to work in, that, in this new country. So the local church organizes a collection in the town to provide the family with furniture. So the question is, is it moral to accept? And take this other context too, for instance. Your neighbor, a well-meaning elderly lady, offers to pay your entire college tuition. And she values higher education. And although she, though she doesn't know you very well, she wants to see you flourish and succeed. So is this different than accepting a privately funded fellowship for which you apply and justify your merit and are chosen among other candidates? And as a follow-up to this, does the independent man have the idea of quote, being beholden to someone for something, close quote. What do you guys have to say about this? So thanks for the this question. This is actually one of the questions that we picked from our store of OAC questions from the year. It's a version of a very common question uh, that we get about the meaning of the virtue of independence, which is, of course, a central uh, objectivist idea. Uh, and when, and there's some special twists that are provided, I think, by the contexts that the that the, this particular question is asking about, and we'll say something about those. But I, I think it's important first to say something about the general issue here, uh, which is first of all to clarify what the virtue of independence is all about. And I think that if you understand it clearly, a lot of the kinds of questions about this will dissolve. And that's to say that first of all, according to Ayn Rand's view of independence. According to the objectivist view of independence, what that virtue is fundamentally is intellectual independence. It's the idea that you are alone in the world with your mind trying to figure out what's true. You need to be the one to manage your thinking. You need to be the one to look at the facts and to interpret them for yourself. Nobody else can do your thinking for you. 
nobody, there's just as there's no collective uh, uh, stomach, there's no collective brain. You're the only one who can use your brain. Uh, this is, this is the, the basic issue. Now, of course, it's true that this has implications for uh, our action in the world and has implications for how we choose to survive. We ultimately have to be the ones uh, to produce our own material sustenance in the world, just as we're the ones who ultimately have to be able to think for ourselves, and these are related issues. But that's a point about what we ultimately need to be able to do. It's still, first and foremost, independence is about looking at the facts and being the one to manage your own mind. And when you do that, you have to look at the facts and accept all of them, um, including, for example, the fact that no one, no human being, is born with the ability to produce what they need to live right away all by themselves. Children are born in a relatively helpless state. And so for instance, that means that uh, children obviously need to be raised by their parents. They need to rely on the production of their parents uh, in order to, in order to uh, get what they need to survive. Um, that's not a violation of the independence of the child uh, to the extent that the child's yet in a position to be able to exercise any virtues at all, and they're not right away, but to the extent they are, what their job as an independent being is to acquire the knowledge for themselves that they need eventually to be able to produce for themselves. Um, and being independent means accepting that fact. It means then accepting um, support from your parents as you're being raised. And that's not what the question was asking about. It was asking about charity, but I think that that example clarifies the more general issue. And once you've done that, uh, understanding uh, how an independent person will think about charity, will uh, you can think about it in a similar way. So for, for instance, if, if it's a fact that you've temporarily lost the capacity to produce for yourself because you've gotten sick or because of some accident or some emergency, uh, that's a fact you need to recognize too as an independent thinker. And uh, if you want to survive, you need to, you need to get sustenance somehow. And so you need to accept charity. And there's nothing vi in violation of the virtue of independence about that, especially if you understand that what independence is fundamentally about is, is the intellectual independence that it takes to know what it is you need to do to survive. And just to illustrate this point, and I'm going to definitely turn this over to Mike because I know he has more to say. Um, there's a there's a passage from the Fountainhead that I think is really revealing, and it's it's good to look at the Fountainhead because that's the uh, that's the that's the text by Ayn Rand that illustrates the meaning of the virtue of independence most clearly. Uh, it's it's the one of the main subjects of the book, and when you think independent man, you think of Howard Rourke, the architect. Uh, who is uh, committed to making his own way in the world and thinking for himself and coming up with his own architectural designs, et cetera. But listen to this passage from the Fountainhead. This is early in the, in the plot, so there's not too many spoilers here from page 75. This is at a point in the story where Rourke's commissions are all drying up and uh, he's, you know, he can't pay his rents and can't pay his utilities. And, and here's the way the situation is described. Rourke learned to face his own landlord with the quiet statement that he could not pay him for another week. The landlord was afraid of him and did not insist. <laughs> Peter Keating heard of it somehow, as he always heard of everything he wanted to know. He came to Rourke's unheated room one evening and sat down, keeping his overcoat on. He produced a wallet, pulled out five $10 bills, and handed them to Rourke. 
You need it, Howard. I know you need it. Don't start protesting now. You can pay me back anytime. Rourke looked at him, astonished, took the money, saying, yes, I need it. Thank you, Peter. Then Keating said, what in hell are you doing wasting your time at your cell phone, old Cameron? What do you want to live like this for? Chuck it, Howard, and come with us. All I have to say is, all I have to do is say so. Francone will be delighted. We'll start you at 60 a week. Rourke took the money out of his pocket and handed it back to him. Oh, for God's sake, Howard, I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't either. But please, Howard, keep it anyway. Good night, Peter. So there's two things that are interesting about this passage. One is that Rourke, who's the paragon of independence, is willing to take charity. And from Peter Keating, no less, you know, you know, who he doesn't think too highly of at this point in the story. Uh, he's willing to take it. He actually does take it. And the only reason he gives it back is not because he's, he's, he's now suddenly realizing that he should never take charity. It's because Keating has insulted him and has, in effect, put a condition, a, a certain string attached to this, to, this, to this money. Now you can just come to work for, uh, for Frank Cohn and we'll all be buddies. And that's not the kind of terms that Rourke wants to take this money on. And that, I think, speaks to this, that last part of that question about whether there is an issue of being beholden to someone for something. I, th I think there is, that an independent person who is willing to take charity uh, when they need it is still not willing to do it under any circumstances on, or under any terms. Uh, here's a case where Rourke is not willing to do it under any terms. Um, you know, would a, would a non-religious person be willing to take it from a religious person if they were expected to then go to church every week? Uh, maybe not. But if they're not expecting that, if they're not tying, uh, not attaching any strings, um, then I don't see, I wouldn't see the problem, um, especially if they're, they're interested in paying it back in some form. Um, but Mike, I know you had more to say on this too, so you should, you should jump in. Yeah, well, I think it's important to, um, remember that the objectivist conception of the virtues is egoistic. And if someone's offering you money and you need it, I think the kind of, at least I would, I would approach it as my default would be to accept the money. And then only if some defeating reason came up, would I reject it? So in, in the little passage you read from the fountainhead, I think that's how Rourke is approaching it. So Keating offers him the money and he says, thank you. And then it's only when the, when the, um, you know, the string or the condition is, is revealed that he, that he rejects it. So I think, I think that's the right um, way to consider accepting gifts and charity and, uh, and whatnot. Now, there's a kind of facet to this question, which I think is worried about, well, if you accept charity, even apart from being beholden to somebody, are you, does that impair your independence? So are you now in some way um, handicapped in your ability to live a self-sufficient life or something like that? And I think a, a lot of what matters is what you plan to go on and do with the gift you're receiving. So in this, in this fountainhead passage, it's clear that what he's going to do is pay his rent so he can continue to go work with Cameron and improve his, uh, his skills. Um, but you can imagine if, if he accepted the charity and then went and blew it on whiskey or gambling or something, um, yeah, that would impact his ability to 
to live in uh, independent existence. So if you're offered a, in the, so the questioner's specific example, um, a neighbor offers you to pay for your college. Well, are you going to go to college and work and learn and choose a career or are you going to go to college and you know <laughs> do the other things people do in college drink and party and uh, and and that's all you're going to get out of college um if that's what you plan to do with the money then there is an issue of becoming um impairing your dependence but if you uh, impairing your independence but if you go and you spend the money on really on your education that's not an impairment of your um, of your independence. Uh, do we want to address the point about being beholden as well? I, I think there's a question about how exactly we understand what that means. Um, because if somebody offers you charity and you accept it, and you know it's it's a genuine non-sacrificial offer of help, um, there is a an issue of you owe them gratitude. Um, it would be wrong to take the money and then just uh, ghost them or something. Not, not um, if they're curious about how are you doing a, a year or two down the line and you have lunch with them and explain. Um, that, is that being beholden? I mean, it's you are in their um, uh, what's not their debt. What's the word? You you do um, owe them gratitude. Uh, I think. Um, yeah, and you may the, want to think about like, is is this the kind of person that you want to express gratitude towards? Like, if you think yeah, they're a bad person sure. generally, uh, and this is like the one case they've done something good. Now, maybe that could change your mind about them. In which case, you would you would you would want to express gratitude. Um, but I think you're you're right that uh, you you are you owe a debt of gratitude, and that's the one way in which you're beholden. And uh, you have to be okay with that. Can I say one other thing about the college example, about the about the neighbor? Sure. Uh, because one of the things that the questioner was asking was, is this different from accepting a privately funded fellowship for which you apply, justify your merit, and are chosen among other candidates? Well, it's definitely different in all those respects. The question is whether that difference makes a difference. And to me, at mm -hmm. least, if anything, that difference, <laughs> that the, the, the case of the neighbor who knows you really well uh, is that's someone who's in a better position probably to assess your merit uh, than somebody who gets a bunch of you know applications from anonymous strangers where they're all you know boasting about you know whatever they have on their resume very selectively um you know the person who knows you who's your neighbor has had a lot of other neighbors over the years has known a lot of other people that they're in just as good of a position if not a better position to judge your you know dessert or something like this as as, as in anybody i think mm -hmm. So um, I have a follow-up questions to this um, because Ayn Rand regarded charity as a marginal issue. She, didn't, she did not regard it as moral duty like a lot of people do. And she said that there's nothing wrong with helping people at all, but if and when they deserve the help and you can actually afford to help them. But from the perspective of the receiver of the charity and of that help, is it moral to accept money or goods from someone that you know is sacrificing him or herself to help you. And because, I mean, I think this happens all the time because we live in an altruistic society and 
altruism has perverted benevolence and goodwill. So a lot of people do sacrifice to give to others and it's a common occurrence. So I would say it, well, I would question how common it is. I mean, it's, it's common that people sacrifice, yes. But is it common that somebody who receives charity from say somebody they know, uh, that that's commonly a sacrifice? That's less clear to me because it's, it's, it's precisely the cases where you know somebody very well, uh, where you are friends and you have a strong relationship and you are a value to them. It's those kinds of cases where it's less obvious that what the person's doing to help you out is a sacrifice. Like it may be true they're giving up a lot of money. It may be true that there are other things they could have bought with that money. Uh, but they, I mean, the reason that that charity is ever justified, at least from the perspective of the giver, is that they decide that your friendship and that your well-being is more important to them personally, selfishly, than the money that they're giving up. Now, you may say to yourself, I wouldn't have given up that much money to help me. But they're the ones who have to make that decision. They're the ones who have to make that judgment, and they have to do it in the context of their hierarchy of values where they decide, you know, this person's well-being is worth more to me than their money. Now, they may have made a bad decision. It's, that's possible. But I think it's less common that, than you're describing or than the question is describing uh, when we're talking about relationships among friends. Now, yeah, if, if you know this person's a stranger to you and you know they're going to like bank, bankrupt themselves, uh, and there's no real good reason for them to be giving to you and that, it, that it's like all the evidence really points to the case that it's a sacrifice for them, then I would have some pretty serious reservations about taking it. I don't know that that's so often the case, um, for, especially for people who are, who are even thinking, going so far as to think about these kinds of questions. I don't, Mike, do you have any further? Yeah, well, I, I wanna, you, you, your examples involve giving money to friends or people you know, but I think there's, I, I've heard, um, I've heard wealthier people explain why they donate to charities. Like, I think it's, um, is the United Way the one that does job training? Uh, Possibly, you know. Yeah, there's a there's a well-known charity that what they they don't just give out money. What they do is they help people, um, you know, job training skills. Uh, how to be a better interview subject when you're applying for a job, things like that. And I, I've heard people explain that they get a value out of donating to those kind of charities because um, it allows them to re-experience something they value about themselves. So if they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and now they're doing very well, and they give to this sort of charity that in effect helps people do that themselves. Um, they get a value out of that as sort of like aesthetic value almost is seeing someone um, who's not doing well, change themselves and succeed it, it is something they value. Now that's not a sacrifice, I don't think. Um, and it's also not, you know, like you're my friend and I know you're a good guy either. So I, I think there's a lot of respects in which you, especially if you have um, so much money that giving life-changing money to somebody else is, is a trivial expense for you, that, that there's a lot of value you can get that's not just, oh, I, I, I know you, I'm your friend, and uh, I want to help you when you're down in your luck. 
So, so I guess what I'm commenting on is the extent to which um, there's sacrifice involved in charity. It, it, by the design of the question, you're asking, do you know your somebody? You know someone sacrificing to you. Um, but if we're talking about how common this is, I think there, there's a case to be made that it, a lot of things that might, from the outside, appear um, sacrificial might not actually be if you know a person's what what the benefactors getting out of it. Um, I think we should move no, on. It makes to a the, lot of sense. Yeah, let's question. move on yeah, to next. the next question that we have. So the question is, could direct taxation be justified in wartime? And if so, then isn't it possible to justify it in peacetime? And the context that the questioner gives is that the emergency of war, uh, of a war would seem like a new context is introduced. And there are many things that are not justifiable in peacetime, which could be justifiable in, in wartime, such as the seizure of property, for example. So could a free society introduce taxation in wartime if necessary, provided it, it be removed afterwards, after the, the, the war is over? And if so, couldn't we say the same for peacetime in anticipation of, of uh, of a, of a future wartime need that could arise. Um, and he, this person goes on to say that, couldn't you also say that the person who doesn't pay for the army and makes use of it anyway, by virtue of being in the country, shouldn't they be billed for that service, for that service like if they had used any other service and then didn't pay for it? Uh, okay, I'll start with this one, uh, Ben. So <clears throat> this is a kind of a question under the broader heading of financing, uh, government financing in a free society. How would we finance the government voluntarily? So I think the way to tackle the question is to first think about the broader issue of government financing and then talk specifically about uh, financing in wartime. So um, there is, I think, an essay that's worth reading if you're really thinking about this um, question uh, you know, at, at home or after we're done talking about it uh, by uh, Rand in, is it the virtue of selfishness? I think it's reprinted in there, government financing in a free society. So yeah, virtue of selfishness, yeah. Government financing in a free society. And we have a short passage I'll read from the essay. Um, <clears throat> it, quote, in a fully free society taxation or to be exact, payment for government services would be voluntary. Since the proper services of government, the police, the armed forces, the law courts are demonstrably needed by individual citizens and affect their interests directly, the citizens would and should be willing to pay for such services as they pay for insurance. Um, so she's got a very kind of broad sketch here in this, in this uh, passage that there should be some kind of voluntary funding. It shouldn't be um, you know, extracted. She doesn't make any exceptions for uh, wartime in the passage. And um, she suggests that people would voluntarily, like she's making a projection about what the citizens of a free society would do. They'd be willing to um, you know, voluntarily contribute to the, the war effort or the in peacetime, the fundings of the police, and so, um, so <clears throat> the question is really asking how would this 
play out in a specific, um, you know, specific situation war in this case. Um, so here's what I think we can say. Um, one is Rand says that she thinks the citizens would fund it voluntarily. I think that's true. And Ben, I think you'll want to say something about that in a minute. But I think before we get to that, it's worth saying that I think that, that should be, um, they should fund the government's war efforts uh, only in so far as they absolutely need to. So one thing the state might do, uh, the government might do in fighting a war is um, sell war bonds, which will be repaid by the aggressor nation after the war is over. Um, so if you're thinking of, uh, let's just take the Japanese uh, attacks on United States in World War II, um, after the war is concluded, the aggressor nation, Japan, should pay reparations to the United States for having to go through, uh, to go through this. And um, that means that, is that voluntary funding on the part of the citizens? Well, it's not giving over money with no expectation of remuneration. It's you sell a war bond. So there's a return on your investment in effect um, extracted from the, uh, from the aggressor. Now, of course, we might, ex we might think that you can't recoup the entire cost of the war. And if that's the case, then we'd have to rely on voluntary contributions. But the principle I'm getting at is that when it's possible that people who initiate force should be the ones to foot the bill, war bonds uh, might be a, a, a way to do that. Um, and then a condition of peace would be some kind of reparations. Um, ben, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's you're right to emphasize that that's, that's one way that that wars would be funded. Uh, I don't think it's the only way. I think there's uh, any number of other forms uh, in which people can voluntarily support a government. And we could talk more about that. But um, I, I do want to emphasize that the, the, the kind of, the question is assuming that the, the, uh, the situation of a war is special and would justify the initiation of force against its own citizens uh, to tax them. Uh, in order to in order to pay for that defending army, but I, I want to make the philosophic point that the the exact same kind of argument could be used to justify, I think, other other measures that would be even harder to see as actually justifiable. So if you can justify wartime taxes because it's a special circumstance to uh, to pay for the war, why not, by the same token, uh, have a draft? Uh, <laughs> which, by the way, would make it easier to pay for because you wouldn't have to pay the drafted soldiers. They're, they're in effect, slaves. Um, and yet, I mean, I think that makes it even clearer that you can't, that, that that is not the way that a free, the government of a free society works, that you don't defend freedom by violating it in this very obvious way, that you're not, it's not an indirect way of using force in retaliation. That's actually initiating force against people who are innocent citizens. Uh, and this is something that Ayn Rand commented on, um, not so much on the question of taxation for the sake of war, but on the subject of, the, of conscription in the case of war. Uh, in the essay that I have listed on the screen here, The Wreckage of the Consensus in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, she answers a parallel question about 
about conscription during war. Um, and I'll just read again a passage from there where she uh, answers that question. She says, it's often asked, but what if a country cannot find a sufficient number of volunteers? You could, it's the same as what if you can't find enough voluntary payments to fund the war? Even so, this would not give the rest of the population a right to the lives of the country's young men. But in fact, the lack of volunteers occurs for one or two reasons. One, if a country is demoralized by a corrupt authoritarian government, its citizens will not volunteer to defend it. But neither will they fight for long if drafted. For example, observe the literal disintegration of the Tsarist Russian army in World War I. Two, if a country's government undertakes to fight a war for some reason other than self-defense, for a purpose which the citizens neither share nor understand, it will not find many volunteers. Thus, a volunteer army is one of the best protectors of peace, not only against foreign aggression, but also against any warlike ideologies or projects on the part of a country's own government. Uh, this is one of the best practical reasons for the abolition of the draft, she says. And you can make the point that it's another, it's another good practical reason for not having uh, involuntary taxation for the sake of wars, that it would discourage wars of aggression or wars on uh, false pretenses for the same kind of reason. And I should mention, if there's just if you're speaking practically and you're wondering about, well, how how practical would it be to expect that, that actual volunteers would would fund uh, a war for a just cause? Uh, I will refer you to facts of history, uh, in particular about the U.S. Civil War where the overwhelming majority of the Union soldiers were volunteers. Um, if, you, if you read a, a really excellent history of the Civil War, uh, Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson, he goes through some of the, the details. Um, of an army of 2 million in the Union, there were about 76,000 who were chosen for the draft. Of those who were chosen, only about 46,000 actually went into battle. The rest uh, skipped out, were exempted, they hired replacements, et cetera. Um, so it's it's really, and yet the Union won with the largely all-volunteer army. Um, I think largely because the people who were volunteered ag agreed that the cause of the war was just. The few people who were in the war who were drafted, it's hard to see that they've made much of a military difference in such small numbers and also so late in the game. But the draft did cause all kinds of problems. It caused people to distrust the government. It caused all kinds of corruption because there were ways that you could hire people to take your place. And it caused massive riots. Uh, if anyone's ever seen the, the movie Gangs of New York, that's what that's all about. By contrast, I should mention the Confederacy used many more draftees uh, and they lost. Um, so uh, that, that's speaking to the, the practical issue. Um, one, one last quick point. I know that you wanted to jump in, Agostina, but uh, the, the point that it's justifiable for governments to seize property during wartime, I think is true, but only in very delimited contexts. Like if there's a battlefield uh, that the enemy is massing outside of, where there's an immediate threat to that sector of the country, uh, and it is, it is immediately necessary for the defense of the country uh, to put soldiers on that field. Uh, there, I think it's justifiable, but there is a case where there is a, a clearly uh, imminent threat and where uh, it's the only way to defend and where the aggression is now uh, against, the aggression has been committed by the enemy. And so you're, you are actually using it, government is using force and retaliation against that aggressor. That's not the case with just uh, going to take money from people who are not uh, the only ones who are in a position to help in effect.
yes, that all that all makes sense to me. Um, however, there's one objection to to Rand's position on on the voluntary financing of government that I often encounter, which is, what do you do about the people that just won't pay? Which is they refer to as the free rider problem. So because nowadays, and we've seen it. For, for a long time, people are free riders on the externalities of others' productions all the time. So can you guys say a few words about that? Yeah, I, I don't think the free rider problem is any problem at all. Free riders exist. They will exist. They always will exist. And it's not a problem. And it's not really even a problem of justice, I don't think. I mean, my the, there's I have two examples. Um, I have a smartphone, which I paid a few hundred dollars for many years ago. Now it's getting a little old because of that. Um, but I've gotten many, many thousands of dollars worth of value from it in spite of having only paid that much. Should I be taxed uh, to give the extra value that I've gotten back to the Apple Corporation? Uh, is it even unjust for me to be getting this extra benefit? This is a positive externality, as they call it. I don't think so. Um, or like, and he, here's something that everybody that applies to lots of people. Um, do you use a credit card? Do you pay the balance off at the end of the month so that you never have to pay interest? If so, you are a free rider uh, on other people's interest payments. You're getting free credit services, being able to pay for anything you want to around the world. Uh, and as long as you pay it back on time, you don't have to pay an extra fee. Uh, should I be taxed because of all the extra uh, credit services that I'm getting? Is that somehow unjust on my part? No, that's that's part of the deal that that we expect to get this positive externality and that's why we sign up for it and if someone doesn't want us to get it they shouldn't offer us the service and and even in situations where you know there's not a trade involved between two people you can have positive benefits from just somebody's uh, a neighbor's actions so if somebody has a nice yard that you like to look at when you walk by i mean you're benefiting from um you know, you're benefiting from a, if you want to call it a positive externality, or if um, somebody uh, hires their own private security, and the private security catches uh, a crook. Well, now that crook is not out there threatening you or not, not no longer a risk to you. The people who have a nice yard or hire private security, it, it, what does it matter to them that I benefit to? Uh, they, um, they do those things for their own uh, egoistical reasons, um, and I benefit from them. It's not a, I don't think there's a real uh, problem here. The people who would what? fund the government during a wartime do it for, even if they do it entirely for their own protection, give n no concern to anyone else. Um, it's not a loss to them that I benefit from that. Yeah, and, and one last point I would quickly add, just because I think part of the reason this question sometimes comes up is because of the idea that, well, if there are free riders, then people will have the incentive to be free riders, and so then nobody will actually pay enough to fund the effort in question. Um, but I think that's also just demonstrably false, empirically speaking, that there are plenty of things where someone could be a free rider and where many people actually are, but where people who really do value the service or the product enough still pony up the money, even though they know other people are free riding. And I always give the example here of community or public radio. They get a very, very small portion of their revenues from taxes, which I don't think they should get any of, but most of what they get, they get from listeners and they get from 
corporations who want to sponsor it. And that's even though anybody can turn on the radio at any time and free ride off of that without having to call up every month, you know, to get that tote bag. Uh, so there are free riders who exist all the time. And I mean, if you would pay, uh, if you would pay a small amount of money just to hear a radio program that you like, imagine how much more you'd pay because you knew it was going to go towards the, you know, defense of the nation and the protection of justice in the form of a government. I think that it's very clarifying on, on this issue. Um, and I agree with you that it, I don't think that the free rider problem would be actually a problem in a, in a free society. Um, but let's move on now to a, our third question. And this is a more specialized question, on, on a specialized philosophical question. Um, and, but like, like I said at the beginning, we wanted to take a wide range of questions to answer. So this one is uh, specifically about the issue of knowledge. So the question is, what is Rand's definition of knowledge? And what is a brief induction of the components of the concept of the concept, quote, unquote, knowledge? And a little bit more than this, that the question, this questioner asks is, how did classical epistemology come to hold the quote, justified true belief, close quote, model. In 1963, Edmund Gettler challenged this model by providing examples where individuals have justified true belief and yet still fail to have knowledge. So what unique resources does subjectivist epistemology have to respond to this issue? Okay, so yeah. Uh, we did want to pick uh, a range of questions, and this one is a little more specialized and a little more technical. It was submitted by an undergraduate philosophy student, and so that's part of the reason we definitely wanted to uh, to speak to some of the technicalities here, though I think some of the first things that we'll have to say about it will be of more general interest. Um, so does, does Rand give a definition of the concept of knowledge? Well, not quite, but she comes pretty close to giving the ingredients for one. Um, if you read her book, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, which you'll see up on the screen here, there is a chapter in there uh, called Concepts of Consciousness. It's a, it's a chapter about concepts that we form to understand the workings of our own mind. Um, knowledge is something that happens that we have in our mind, and so she does say something briefly about how we form the concept of knowledge and how her theory of concept formation applies to this concept. And here's, here's what she does say about it. And I'll just quote it. Um, she says, the concept knowledge is formed by retaining its distinguishing characteristics, parenthesis, a mental grasp of a fact of reality reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation. And parentheses. So you get it by, by retaining the distinguishing characteristics and omitting the particular facts involved. Now, we would have to say a lot more about uh, what her theory of concepts is and what she's doing with this example to apply that theory to this concept, to the concept of knowledge. But I think uh, something important to take away from what she says here is that, yeah, something what, what distinguishes knowledge from other concepts of consciousness, what distinguishes the concept of knowledge from other concepts of consciousness is by her statement, uh, a the fact that it's a mental grasp of a fact of reality. Now, Mike and I were having a discussion about this a little earlier and there was a question of, I hear uh, somebody's got a fire in their neighborhood. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a question of how, 
how close is the concept of knowledge to just something like the concept of consciousness, uh, which for Ayn Rand, more people know is what she calls an axiomatic concept, a concept mm. that you can't give a definition of just because it is so basic. Uh, and I mean, I think it's a good question because it's, a, it's very close to that. It's very close to being axiomatic. And so the one question you can ask is, well, is this a definition that you can even give? Is it a concept that you can give a definition of? But I think that what she's pointing to in that passage in, in Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology is that, well, there is more you can say about knowledge beyond that it is consciousness. When she talks about it's being a mental grasp of a fact of reality, if that, if that so that's a metaphor. Um, but if we're to take it a little bit more literally, and if we're to think about what the concept of knowledge means and the things that it distinguishes, the other things that it's distinguished from, well, consider that there are forms of consciousness that are less of a mental grasp uh, that, um, than what we would call knowledge. Like there are fleeting states of consciousness, for instance, like just uh, basic uh, physical sensations. There's even you know, perceptual awareness of things that is relatively fleeting. That's not really a grasp. So like whatever's in your peripheral vision, for instance, uh, you're perceiving something, you're aware of something, but you're not really grasping it. And so I think what she's getting at is that what distinguishes knowledge from other forms of consciousness is that it's something retained. It's something uh, that's a more of a definite product of certain mental processing compared to other forms of consciousness that are more fleeting. And that is a real distinction among the things, uh, the forms of consciousness that we have. And we often talk about how knowledge is something that's stored how knowledge is something that you learn, that you acquire. It's not something that you just have in a moment. Uh, and so I think that's the understanding of the concept of knowledge that she's working with. Uh, and uh, it so ben, makes ben, uh, if we a were lot to, of sense. If we were to turn what you just said into, or attempt to turn it into a definition, we think something like the genus is a state of awareness uh, and then the, dif the differential would be so retention or retained state of awareness. So the yeah. genus differentiate retained state of awareness um, would be the, the definition that she's gesturing towards. Um, I think it's, do we want to say a little bit about Gettier because it, it comes up in the question? Yeah, um, uh, and I'll, I'll try to be not go into too well, many um, details about this, but part of the reason that the student is asking this question about someone named Edmund Gettier, uh, who was a philosopher of the late 20th century who recently died, is because the debate about Gettier's problem has, has dominated the entire field of contemporary analytic epistemology for the last Since 50 the 60s, years. Yeah. yeah. And so like, if you've ever taken a class in philosophy where the subject of the theory of knowledge comes up, you'll have heard of the Gettier problem and you can't avoid it. And so it's a good question to be asking if you're a philosophy student. Um, and the issue is well, something like this. Do, do we want to wanna... say what the, what the, we pose it as the Gettier challenge or problem, what the problem is. So um, yeah. allegedly the historical definition of knowledge has been that knowledge is a justified true belief now there's some question of who exactly thinks that um right the historical question of who exactly thinks that but it, it when 
Gettier poses his challenge to this definition, the definition is kind of universally accepted as, oh, that what else could it be? We have to start with that as the definition and then work to fix it. So um, there's, I think, two things that are worth saying about what they're doing. So one is they're starting with this definition, justified true belief. Gettier's problem is uh, he points to a class of counterexamples to this definition. And then what philosophers or epistemologists do in the wake of those counterexamples is to try to add new conditions or modify one of the th original three conditions. And there, so I think it, we should point out too is they're thinking about definitions differently than we would. So we think in terms of genus and differentia, uh, that's the kind of classical Aristotle inspired model of definitions. They think of it in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions for class inclusion. So, um, do yeah, we, though I you, think there are, a, ways, a, there are ways, there are ways to, to interpret that? their, their necessary and sufficient condition view along genus differential lines. So you could interpret what the justified true belief definition of knowledge is doing is giving a genus of belief. Belief, knowledge is yeah. a kind of belief well it's the and it's the kind that has justification it's got evidence or reasons for it and it's also true and that's a plausible sounding definition if just at kind of at first blush but one thing to consider here is is that even the right kind of thing to think of what knowledge is is knowledge a kind of belief a belief is a psychological state that's neutral between being a actual form of consciousness of reality uh, and something that might be completely detached from reality. Fantasy. And I think the reason, yeah, I mean, I think the reason that um, philosophers find this at least plausible as a definition is because they're coming from a broader tradition in philosophy um, where the starting point of the discipline of epistemology is the internal states of our consciousness. So think here of Descartes, who says, I think therefore I am, I know that I exist, but it's a big question whether there's anything outside me, uh, outside of my consciousness. And uh, if that's your starting point, then yeah, you're gonna think, well, knowledge, if it's anything at all, is uh, uh, something mental, but now there's a separate question of, can I figure out which mental state it is and is it actually connected to reality? And that's where they try to add, well, it's the kind that's justified and actually true. Um, Incidentally, they also assume the only way to start to talk about mental states is propositional states, leave that aside. Um, but I think to now get to the second issue of the Gettier counterexample, I, my personal view is that the kinds of examples that, he's give, that he gives or that are given here are actually pretty good counterexamples to that definition. And they point to something that's wrong with the whole tradition in epistemology that starts with belief as the genus and starts with consciousness as the starting point, as opposed to saying, no, existence is the starting point. And just to give you an example of the kind of example that's often, this is not one that Gettier actually gave, but this one I've made up or uh, selected because our audience would be familiar with it. Think about an Atlas Shrugged. When uh, Dagny meets Francisco for the first time uh, in the story, when it's in real time, she goes to the hotel, the Wayne Falkland, um, he's playing marbles and there's a big plan of a smelter laid out on 
uh, his floor. And she's thinking, she looks at him and she thinks, this can't be the playboy that I've been led to believe that he is. Uh, and in fact, it turns out she's right. He isn't actually the playboy. He's pretending to be a playboy, but she doesn't actually know this. So it's a case where she believes on some level that he can't be a playboy. She's got some reason for it because she looks at him and, and he doesn't look like a playboy. And here he is drawing a picture of a smelter. And it's actually true that he's not a playboy, but she doesn't know it because, because he's he's been also putting up all this false evidence to make it look like he is one. And she doesn't know that he's engaging in this process of deception and she has to figure this out later. So that's a case where she's accidentally right uh, and has some reason, but she doesn't really know it. And all the Gettier examples look like that. And I think that they succeed. I think they show why uh, justified true belief actually is not knowledge. I think they show that um, what makes something knowledge is that you're actually actively grasping reality, that knowledge is a form of consciousness. Uh, and you're never going to find some additional, some additional factor that you can add on top of justified true belief that will make it knowledge aside from consciousness. But because philosophers today don't want to acknowledge that consciousness is an axiom that we have to take for granted uh, as a starting point in all discussion, that we have contact with reality and that skeptical questions are incoherent because they don't want to start with that position. They don't have that option available to understanding how to define knowledge. And we could go into more of the history of the problem and what, what problems that it shows with the state of philosophy and its methodology. But I think to save time, uh, I'll skip that. And, and I know, Mike, you wanted to say more. Um, I don't know much to add. I think it's it's worth noting one difference between uh, objectivism and mainstream mainstream epistemology on this point is that the concept knowledge is not as central to objectivist epistemology as it is central to analytic epistemology. We're not obsessing over how to define it. Um, I mean, we just said that Rand talks about it. She doesn't actually stop to give a you know, a genus differentia uh, definition and put it in italics and say, this is the, you know, and here's examples and counterexamples. Um, and part of the reason I think, uh, Ben, we talked about this uh, last night is um, the worry about skepticism that um, analytic philosophy takes uh, much more seriously or centrally than, than we do. So they're very concerned about um, how do we defeat the skeptic and all these different skeptical arguments? And when you're in that mode, part of the way you defeat skepticism is to define knowledge in such a way that you can actually have it given the skeptical um, challenges. Uh, and that's not the central concern of uh, yeah. objectivism. Objectivism is more concerned with giving positive, positive advice on how to get more knowledge than it is on defeating some kind of, uh, you know, uh, the skeptical scenario. Um, analytic philosophy I, tends to be much more descriptive uh, at it, you know, at its best is much more descriptive than normative. Um, and I think that's also a result of, of, of this worry about skepticism. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I don't think I have any more to add.
that wouldn't would take too long to add. So. <laughs> that was a very thorough, that was a very thorough answer and very clarifying. So thank you guys. And I think uh, we are almost at time. So why don't we move on to the next question that we got, the last question, which has to do with the objectivist community. And uh, there's some background that this person, the questioner, uh, gives in order to ask the question. So it reads, it seems to me that some who profess an admiration of objectivism are not skilled in rational thinking. If I understand Rand, she is saying the most important thing is to think for yourself, to think critically about everything and not accept a view simply because someone else holds it even if it is an objectivist spokesperson or Rand herself. So even if someone is attracted to Rand's work, they may still be dogmatic, slavishly and uncritically adopt objectivist positions. And they may want to quote, fit in to objectivist groups and, and fail to do their own quote, firsthand thinking for themselves. I have more respect for someone who disagrees with an objectivist position if they have reached their own view through a serious thought process and show they are doing their best to be factual and logical than I do for someone who agrees, but in a shallow, quote, secondhand way. It is as if Peter Keating joined an objectivist study group. Do you agree? And do you think this is or has been a serious issue? One thing I think to put on the table um, is that these kind of questions, they're often put as objectivists are doing so-and-so or, you know, behave this way. They have dogmatists, they have schisms, they, whatever. Um, and it, I mean, it's true that there are dogmatists and there are schisms, but the posing it as if this is a uniquely objectivist thing is, I think, just wrong on the facts. Like if you're Facebook friends with other with people who are involved in other ideological groups, you'll see them complain about the same broad sort of things, like about libertarians splitting with each other, for example, or socialists, or you know. And then there's historical cases of the founding fathers fighting with each other that come up. Um, but even on the dogmatism thing, like I have friends from graduate school who are or Facebook friends from graduate school who are radical Marxist socialists, and they complain about tankies and you know, who are people who just kind of dogmatically apologize for everything every socialist government's ever done. So you have the same kind of tribalistic stuff going on elsewhere too. So I think the best way to answer this kind of question is to situate objectivism as a, a radical, moral revolutionary type uh, um, movement and then think, okay, so do those kind of movements attract people who are, attract people who are group thinkers, dogmatists? And I think there's a reason to think that that's just something that happens in, in general. And then to, to answer it from that perspective, Ben, do you want to yeah, I, I agree with you that it's important to think about how what objectivism has in common with a lot of these other cultural movements in this regard. Though I think the, the, the comparison to Marxism, somebody could say, well, but you expect Marxists to be dogmatic. Uh, so that's, 
that's not uh, that's not such so much a point in 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 objectivism's favor, and so I think you have to think. And you know, so you mentioned the example of the founding fathers. Uh, I don't know if there are, and you were giving the example of how there's infighting among them. But if we're talking about the question of dogmatism, um, and uh, how why would you expect to find something like that in a radical movement that is otherwise uh, thought to you know, that otherwise emphasizes the importance of the virtue of independence, which we were talking about at the top of the podcast. Uh, and I think to understand that, you have to point to the fact that anytime you have a radical philosophy that rejects a lot of conventional wisdom, um, it's, going to, it's going to attract a lot of people who are against the conventional thinking, uh, but not necessarily in favor of a positive value, the positive value of reason, the positive value of, of reality. Um, especially when uh, the philosophy claims to be in favor of individualism. Um, you're also gonna get a lot of people who, who think that they are the ultimate individualists who are the rogues who've alone figured out the truths of society. So you get this, a lot of people who are conspiracists, for instance, are this way. I think this is the kind of phenomenon you see described in Ayn Rand's essay, Selfishness Without a Self, people who are looking for a tribe to to be the guru for, uh, to you know, a, they're looking for a tribe to lead. They can be instrumental in encouraging dogmatism uh, mm -hmm. among their uh, would-be tribal members. Uh, and then, of course, there are a lot of people who are are just looking to join a tribe for themselves, and they happen to have glommed on what, to whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason, to the the tribe of individualists. Uh, and this is, I think, to be expected whenever you have a philosophy that's kind of radically countercultural. You'll have people who have left tribes and who are looking for tribes, looking for a new tribe to join because this one is against the one that's rejected them. Um, but to get to the real essence of the question, uh, I, I think that the person who asked the question is, is, is very correct uh, that these, these dogmatists among Ayn Rand fans do exist and that it's a problem. And that according to objectivism even, it's better to disagree with objectivism for first-handed independent reasons. If you have your own, if you don't understand the philosophy, if you don't agree with it, if you don't understand why the arguments follow, it's much better uh, to say you don't agree with it, be honest about that, uh, than to say that you agree with it without actually understanding what you're talking about and to treat it as a kind of dogma. Um, and I, I mentioned that uh, as a way of, of pivoting to one of the last things that we wanted to do in this, in this podcast today, uh, which is to mention that this last perspective that I've just been articulating about why it's better to disagree with objectivism according to objectivism, if, you, if, if, if the alternative is dogmatism, because that's the kind of perspective that we try to encourage uh, when we teach students at the Objectivist Academic Center, which is which is the uh, the three-year program, the three-year academic program um, that we run at the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, and I, you'll see up on the screen here a list, and there's uh, a list of some of the bullets uh, of the major emphasis uh, of our program. So we encourage students to understand objectivism and to understand how it contrasts with other philosophies. So we give students the chance to compare objectivist arguments to the arguments of other philosophers, uh, to try to get them to think for themselves about whether objectivism is true. Uh, the first question we encourage students to ask isn't, 
you know, is such and such a position consistent with objectivism? But is the, is the position true? Is objectivism actually true, especially when you compare it to other philosophies? Uh, we want them to decide for themselves if it's true. And uh, we want to teach some of the methods of thinking that flow from objectivism's view of knowledge, which is a methodology concerned with what it means to be an independent thinker, what it means to assess for yourself, uh, whether a statement, a position, or a whole philosophy is true. Uh, and then, yes, we also do teach you to be a better thinker, writer, speaker, uh, all of which, again, are skills that I think flow from understanding what it means to be an independent thinker and what it means to think of other people as independent thinkers who you're trying to communicate with, where you realize that they have to think for themselves, that they don't, uh, that if you want to find rational people to convince, that you can't just expect them to take you uh, uh, on faith, uh, that they're not looking to just take a dogma from you, that you need to make your arguments objective to them, that you need to be able to muster the evidence in such a way that respects their context and respects their independence. Uh, if that's, if, if, unless, you know, you want uh, tribalistic dogmatists, which, which we don't. And Mike, did you have any more on that? And you, you, you've uh, been teaching with us for the first time this year in the OAC, so maybe you could have perspective there. Um, I don't have really have anything to add to what you said. I think you uh, got um, most of it. I mean, uh, the, the one point uh, I'll add is that it's um, what, what's not important, or sorry, what's less important is, as a, especially as a student, uh, especially as somebody who's new to objectivism, what counts less is whether or not you count yourself as an objectivist. What counts more is whether or not you're interested in figuring out what's true. So um, one of the things that I think uh, pushes in the direction of a kind of dogmatist is if you're obsessing over it, oh, it, it, is this the, is my opinion the objectivist opinion? And oh, it's not. Okay, so I need to change my opinion because I wanna be an objectivist. Like that's not what we encourage. What we encourage is the perspective of, oh, what's the objectivist view? Okay, is this true? Oh, I think it's not true. Okay. so then you've learned something um, it, or, you know, hopefully we're, we're objectivists. So hopefully you come across uh, our, to our, to our side, but. Um, yeah. There's no point in wanting to be an objectivist if yeah. you don't already <laughs> think don't that think the philosophy true. is true. Yeah. So uh, that, that's the first question. So let's, um, let's uh, then uh, to start to wrap up, let's share some details about how you can become a member, uh, how you can become a student at the OAC. Uh, I already talked about what, our focus is, um, but we are currently accepting applications uh, for the 2021-2022 graded student program. That's a program that begins in September. Um, it's open, uh, the graded student program is open to anyone who's pursuing an intellectual career. Application deadline is uh, July 12th. Uh, it is a tuition-based program, but the graded students are eligible for scholarships. Um, it's also possible to uh, pay, pay tuition as an auditor. Uh, the, there's an early registration uh, discount that's available right now if you apply by June 7th. And the place to apply is einran.org slash OAC. That's where you can submit your application. Um, there's a, a short entrance exam that we, that we give people to see how well they 
already understand uh, objectivism to see where they're coming from. Um, and I will also mention that uh, if you're still on the fence about uh, whether to sign up for the OAC, I, there's a lot of people, by the way, who applied for it, but who haven't completed their application. And so this is in part for you. Uh, we have a new program that we're announcing, I guess, as of this moment uh, of, of OAC preview courses. So these will be two public seminars that we will be holding over the summer uh, for people who are interested maybe taking more OAC classes with us to get a flavor uh, of what it's like to be an OAC. We're gonna be discussing two major essays by Ayn Rand. We're gonna be discussing them using much the same approach that we use when we teach OAC classes over the course of semesters. You're gonna have the opportunity to test your knowledge of objectivism to see whether there's more that you can learn from us using the methods that we use. Um, the two essays we're gonna be discussing at these programs will be Ayn Rand's What is Capitalism? I'm gonna be involved in that one. And then another discussion of for the new intellectual. And Mike's going to be involved in that one. Um, and uh, there'll be a short assignment that we give, a 400-word assignment. We're going to give you some feedback on your answers. Uh, and we are now giving you, who are in our new ideal audience, the first chance to sign up for these OAC preview courses. So if you're interested, you want to get a taste for OAC, uh, we'll put this link in the chat, hopefully whoever's using doing Zoom today will put this link in the chat, but it's bit.ly slash OAC preview. That's a bit.ly slash OAC preview. That's how you can sign up for these, these two seminars we're having during the summer to give people flavor what to expect from OAC, where we, where we try to teach people to understand objectivism for what it is so they can decide for themselves whether it's true uh, from people who uh, are experts in the field who know and who've studied objectivism for many years. Uh, and it's, I think, an invaluable experience if you're, if you're, if you're exploring this philosophy and want to do so systematically uh, for, the, for the first time. So I think we can uh, then wrap so, up with our usual announcements. Yeah, I, I wanted to add just uh, one quick comment that I uh, went to, I went through the OAC program and I found it immensely valuable. Uh, it's the single most valuable educational experience I've had and I've had a lot of them. So if anything, if any of this uh, interests you, the audience, just I would encourage you to sign up for the, for, the, for the preview courses and then for the OAC because it's really, really, really good. So, well, I wanted to thank um, for the super chat donations that we've received today. And I would like to mention some of the ways that you can follow us on social media. Um, but first, let's talk about what is on next week on uh, this podcast, New Idea Live. So we're going to be having a conversation with Professor and IP expert Adam Mossoff on the politic of patents. Uh, that's going to happen on Wednesday, next Wednesday, uh, May 12th at 1 p.m. Pacific and 4 p.m. Eastern. Note that there's a change in our usual time, so put it in your calendars. And next, here is uh, how to follow us on, on social media. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, please subscribe to our channel and please click the bell to get notifications when we go live or post new materials. And please also like, share, and comment on this video to help attract attention to our channel as well. 
And likewise, if you're watching uh, on Facebook, please like and share these broadcasts and future broadcasts to participate. And then if you have uh, questions or comments, please email them to us at newideal at ironrand.org. Uh, we always read the emails, we often answer them, and sometimes we take your suggestions for future, epi for future episodes, topics on, on, that we discuss. So I should say about that, that email address that yes. uh, we're, we're, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, Augustina, that we're, we're probably going to try to do more Q&A episodes like the one we did today as a more regular feature of this podcast. And so if, if, you, if you would like your question to be answered on such a podcast in the future, that's something else that you can send uh, to the new ideal at einrand.org address. We may have miscellaneous episodes like this one. We may also have thematic episodes where we collect together a bunch of questions that have come in on similar subjects. Uh, so the more questions we get, I think the the better the case we can make for having such episodes. So please, please send those questions in. Please do. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Mike for answering all these questions today. It was, I think it was very clarifying and informative. And thank you to our audience for being with us here today. Hope to see you next week. Thanks, Augustina. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.